invite you to join with me in a word of prayer. Oh Lord God, I pray that you would let your light shine into your word and into our hearts. Help us to see your goodness, your power, and your love. And I pray that you would help me as I preach this morning to be clear and true and that it would serve your people well. I ask this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. So there's a word that I want to begin with that is one we don't use very often. It's the word entropy, which is a word that's common to the study of physics or sometimes marketplace economics. And entropy means the tendency toward disorder, that things will go toward chaos or break down left to their own devices. I was uh, many years ago visiting a college roommate of mine in Portland, Oregon, which is a pretty liberal place and pretty godless place uh, then and these days. And there was a traveling evangelist we went to see who was making the argument for creationism, the belief that there is a creator who upholds, as we say, he's got the whole world in his hands. He brings order out of chaos. And he was arguing against uh, a total view of evolution. And one of the things that he said was, he did an illustration. He had do you know what a Chinese checkers board is? It's a big metal tin board with little like indentations to hold marbles hammered into it and a big star pattern on it. It's got a lot of dots on it. He made a very ornate um, pattern with marbles and then he said, I'm gonna just add a little bit of energy to this and went bump and then the marbles started moving and he did it two or three times and then he showed us and there was no more pattern. There was sort of randomness and the marbles were just spread out wherever. And he made the point that things don't, of their own, order themselves. They don't just accidentally get better. They don't go from chaos to order. They usually go from order to chaos, apart from some force acting upon them. I'm, I'm watching my backyard that I haven't worked at very much go to chaos. There are vines growing and things need to be trimmed and the lawn's behind and some other things. And I just haven't had as much time to put order into that chaos. Now, I could also say there are things in the world, maybe by God's mercy and grace, where like Chernobyl, the city that had that terrible nuclear uh, um, waste go everywhere and all the radiation, people left it and nature is actually taking over the city. I saw an interesting story about that where what was once an urban city is becoming almost wilderness again and it's sort of like healing, like there's healing in the earth to restore things that are broken but I don't think it's accidental. Or consider your body. If you neglect your body, you don't do exercise, you eat a bunch of cholesterol, you don't brush your teeth, what happens? Heart disease, decay, um, and you break down. Aging goes faster, these kind of things. However, if you have an injury or cut yourself, your body has within it the ability to heal. And so that's not accidental. There's something that heals you. And think about society too. If we push a creator, a God out of culture, out of society, and we do whatever we want, it tends to break down. It goes from being godly to more and more godless. And I can give you ample examples of that, just looking in our own society in the last couple of decades. So the question I want to ask when I think about entropy is where is God in the mix? What is he doing? How is his grace, his common grace playing out in everybody's life? And what happens if God pulls back a little bit? Or more specifically, if we deny God, what kind of chaos happens? 
Now today, my main idea from the text is that God delivers us through the chaos of sin. He delivers us through the chaos of sin, not even from it, but he uses the chaos of sin and brings judgment upon sin, and he delivers us through it and brings out order on the other side. This is a repeating pattern that we will see in God's interactions with humanity. Now, the problem for me as the preacher is we read seven verses from Exodus 7, but my preaching text is really four chapters. It's the, it's the plagues, all ten plagues. And our preaching schedule is going to move on to something else. But honestly, I don't think you want 10 sermons in a row, the first one being on blood in the river and the second one being on frogs and the third one being on flies and going through individual 20-minute sermons on each of the plagues. Um, I'm not sure I could do that. I know you don't want to hear it. So we're going to take the, the whole thing as one big entity, right? So, and, and I think this is important because what we see in the plagues, which is a, a there's actually a pattern to them, is a a picture of uncreation, where the created order is moving toward more and more chaos. It's breaking down. And what generated this was something in chapter 5 that Pharaoh said when Moses first goes to him with the request of the Lord to let his people go and worship, them, worship him in the wilderness. In Exodus 5, 2, it says, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That's a great question. That is one we should all ask. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Now, the answer comes in three triads and then a tenth plague, three, three groups of threes, and there's kind of a pattern. The first one is blood. The, the, all the water turns to blood, and then frogs come up out of this nasty water, and the first two, by secret arts, the magicians of Egypt are able to, to perform a, a, like a magic trick or something that has satanic power or something, and they can replicate that. They can add to it, but they can't take it away. They don't have the ability to get rid of all the frogs. They just can make more frogs. And then the third one is flies or, or maybe like mosquitoes or lice. It, it's not clear what that word can necessarily mean. But the first triad is basically saying, there's a difference between magic tricks and lesser power and miraculous power from the creator. And then there's another triad of, of these. Then flies begin to propagate all over the place, and then locusts, or excuse me, and then livestock die, all the cattle die, and then there are boils that happen on the bodies of the Egyptians. And what we find in the, that triad is the area of Goshen, which is where the Hebrews were living, all that is spared. And it's a distinction between the Egyptians that are suffering judgment and God's deliverance and, and sparing the Hebrews. And then there's a third triad where hail comes down and destroys some of the crops, and then locusts come and eat the rest of the crops, and then finally, darkness for three days, just utter darkness over the whole land. And in that triad, we see the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, like complete hardening, like it's just, he's... He's really hardened, and even some Egyptians are not. They go to him and say, just let those people go. Don't you see? Your hardness of heart has ruined Egypt. It's been totally destroyed. Now, right away, I want you to notice the naturalistic nature of these plagues. And people have pointed this out. In fact, some of the critical scholars have tried to say, this is all just a coincidence of nature. And they, and, I mean, and really, if you turn 
all of the waters into bad water, whether it's, I mean, they'll say it's red clay got stirred up and it killed the sea life and the fish died. Well, then what would happen? Well, then the frogs can't live in there, so they come up onto the land, and then there are frogs everywhere, and then what happens from that? Well, then there's mosquitoes are formed, and there's like this breakdown of chaos. And you can make that argument, and I think there actually is something to be said for it, but just because it uses natural things does not mean it's not miraculous. It's one thing for me to say, there's a good chance we'll see some hurricanes. It is hurricane season. It's another thing for me to say, on Monday, there will be a large disturbance that will wreck all of Miami, and that happens. <clears throat> the coincidence of the timing makes you think, oh, huh. Now, if God's purpose was simply to show how powerful he was, Hollywood can show you what that would look like. Really. I mean, th- I, I, there's so, you, can, you think of what these, pick anything in Hollywood that is a display of power. Um, Harry Potter, when he wants to show his aunt his power, he turns her into a balloon and she swells up at the table, huge, and then starts floating out the window like a weather balloon. That's impressive. Or back to the Wizard of Oz, I'm melting, she cries when water hits her and she just melts into the floor and her clothing and her hat are all that's left. Right? Uh, If you watch Stranger Things, the dark force of the underside of Stranger Things causes a person to rise 15 feet up off the, air, off the ground, frozen like this, and then all their bones break in a weird contortion. That's impressive. You know, so it's like, okay, if this is Pharaoh, and I'm like, Pharaoh, I want you to let my people go. God has sent me. Boom! Spontaneous combustion. There goes Cindy. <laughs> Can we get, no? Boom! Rocco. Can we, can we go, or are you next, right? If, that's all, if all that God wanted to do was get the Israelites out, it'd be pretty easy for him to do it with something like that, some kind of a really obvious, unnatural display of his power. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he even says this in chapter 9, of, right before the hail plague, he says, for by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Pharaoh, pay attention. I could wipe you out right now, and I've not done this. And so that raises the question, why didn't he do it? Why didn't God use that abject power that is certainly at his disposal? Well, at least one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight times he tells us why he didn't do that. In chapter seven, verse four, he says, I'm doing this, these plagues, and hardening Pharaoh's heart, so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. 7.17 and 8.22, he says, I'm doing this, that Pharaoh will know that I am the Lord. In 9.14, he says, I'm doing this so that you will see that there is none like Yahweh in all the earth. No one compares to this God in all the earth. 9.16, I'm doing this to show my power and that my name would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Now, I want to point out, God is not some ego monster who's like just trying to make his name big. His name is the ultimate name. He is the greatest, and it would not serve us well if that remained hidden. Out of love, he has declared himself, he has made himself known because we were made to worship him. We need to know that he's the greatest or we'll be tempted to worship something lesser. It's not that he needs our worship, we need to worship him. And he loves us, and so he helps us learn that. It goes on, 929. 
I'm doing this so that you will know that the whole earth is mine. The whole earth. Um, and 10.2 says, I'm doing this so that you will tell your children and your grandchildren about my marvelous works. This is for the generations, and that would include us. I could extrapolate that down through the generations. I'm declaring the wondrous deeds of God this morning of something that happened literally thousands of years ago. Generation to generation to generation, hearing about this incredible God of all generations. And then 1190 says, I'm doing this, that my wonders will be multiplied throughout the land of Egypt. And even the Egyptians come to see, some of them at least, that he's the Lord. Now we've got on our hands a cosmic battle. This is not Moses versus Pharaoh. This is not the Israelites versus the Egyptians. It's not, it's, it's, it's God versus Pharaoh, Egypt, and all their false gods. He is, he is demonstrating that he is the true God. And so some of the plagues directly line up with deified creation in the Egyptian pantheon, I'll call it, of what the Egyptians worshipped. They worshipped a god of the Nile named Hapi, H-A-P-I. Well, the first plague is against the Nile, showing that, nope, your supposed god of the Nile is not the god of the universe. I am the god of the universe. The second one they had a fertility goddess named Heke, Heket, H-E-K-E-T. Do you know how she was portrayed in, in pictures? She had a frog's head. Second plague is a plague of frogs. Now, they, all the plagues don't line up one-to-one -one like that, but jump ahead to plagues nine and ten, and the ninth plague is darkness for three days. Do you know what the name of the sun god of Egypt was? Ra. You even know the name of the sun god of Egypt. God is saying, that is not a god. I am God. I decide if it's light or not. God said, let there be light, and there was light in the darkness. In John chapter 1, Jesus came as the light of the world into the darkness and dispelled the darkness. And the last one, um, the tenth plague, is death, the death of the firstborn. The Egyptians had a god named Osiris who was the god of death. So we see here that the Lord is showing that he is the true Lord above any other false god that might be worshipped. And that includes anything in you, in your life or my life, that we might be tempted to put in the place of God, any kind of idolatry we might have. Now, I do want to point out that that, that domino effect of the first plague being the, the Nile River, the water being ruined, and leading to this ecological breakdown that ruins the entire land should point at least a good uh, Jewish synagogue-attending person back in their mind to Genesis 1, where there was darkness over the, the creation, and the Spirit of God hovered over it, and it was a formless void, and then God started to speak. And as his word went forth, order came out of the chaos. God brought forth order where there had been chaos, and he separated water from land, and different types of animals, and the sky, and the heavenly beings, and all the stuff. God ordered what was just raw creation. He created it, and then he brought order out of the chaos. And again, God delivers through the chaos and the chaos of sin in particular. This is a pattern that we'll see over and over again. So take, for instance, the story of the flood, the account of Noah and the ark in Genesis 6 through 8. There's increasing corruption on the earth, that entropy idea. They've, they don't want God, and so their society is breaking down. There's increasing corruption in all the earth, and God decides to bring judgment upon it. How does he do it? With a flood. It says how, did, how the flood happened. He actually let the waters burst forth from the ground. As what, It's not all rain. It comes up. It's like the, the order that God brought in Genesis 1, he, 
he let go of, took his hands off of that, and he let the chaos ensue and water flood the earth. And all the people die except for those that were in the ark. And then out of that chaos, he brings forth a new covenant with Noah and a new day. And there's judgment, there's chaos, and there's God then bringing salvation or deliverance for Noah's family through the chaos. God delivers through the chaos of sin. And these plagues are just anti-creation. It's like a backwards Genesis 1. And God is not just saying, I have power to do impressive things. He's saying, I, I am the power that upholds the entire world. I'm over all of creation as well as in the details and specific, specific details of your life. And so we learn some things about God. Now, I have to, as a sort of side note, I have to talk about the fact that it says several times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then sometimes Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And one thing that we know for sure is God is not evil, does not do evil. So you can't say God made Pharaoh do evil things. That would be heretical. It would be stepping outside of what the rest of the scriptures make clear. But if I, if I jump ahead to the New Testament and I go to Romans chapter 1, I learn something about that entropy, that chaos that ensues. Apart from God's grace, we will break down in awful ways. It says in Genesis 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he points to creation. He says they should know God because the entire created order points to him. And though they knew that there was a God that did this, they denied him. It says, he says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Think all the gods of Egypt. But we're, we don't, you know, we're not really big into worship of frogs per se, but substitute whatever you are tempted to worship in there. Rather than submit my life to the eternal God and worship him, I will find something else to worship because I don't want to submit. I've got the human pride of sin. I want to be my own Lord. But see, I'm made as a worshiper. I'm created to worship, so I will find something to worship, usually made in my own image. We will worship things like money, power, sex, fill in the blank, things that are way more common to human society rather than worship the God over all of this. That's our human problem. It's interesting that in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that all of creation is groaning under the sin that we've inflicted on the world by our rebellion, it's groaning and it's longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God, that when Christ returns, he's going to restore all things, including the creation. There won't be hurricanes anymore. He will fix all that is broken in the created order. The, the inanimate creation is longing, it's groaning under the pain, it's longing for God to restore it all. Very interesting how Paul goes there. In fact, in chapter nine, he also goes into the fact that Pharaoh was hardened by God. And see, on this little sidebar, we have to recognize that God can harden Pharaoh by simply letting Pharaoh do what Pharaoh wants to do. He just pulled back his hand of grace a little bit and let Pharaoh go down that path. And that's what he, Paul says in Romans 1 happens, is that God gave them up to a debased mind to do what should not be done. They exchanged his glory and they worshiped the created thing. Apart from God's grace, there go I, and there go you. That's what happens. So he just simply let Pharaoh do what Pharaoh wanted. And Pharaoh didn't submit, and then God and the plague started to unfold. Now, um, fast forward to Jesus, and imagine 
what that was like for these Jewish men that were in a fishing boat when a big storm came up. I have Rembrandt's, a print of Rembrandt's painting of Christ in the storm with their fishing boat going crazy. Rembrandt painted himself, by the way, into that painting on the boat looking right at the, the, the person that's looking at the painting. So there's like an extra, there's 12 apostles, Jesus, and then there's this 14th guy in there that's Rembrandt. And it's a killer storm. And what happens? Jesus says, be still. And immediately the winds and the waves die down. And they're sitting in this fishing boat on a dead calm Sea of Galilee. And you know what their question is? Who can command the winds and the waves and even they obey him? And there is one answer to that. It's the same God that created all things. It's the same God that delivered through the flood. It's the same God that humbled Pharaoh and brought all those plagues. And he's, this, is, this is our God. This is the God of the universe. It says in John 1 that all things were created through Christ. And without him was not anything made that has been made. He is the light of the world. So notice in the last plague, the last plague is the death of the firstborn. The ninth plague is three days of total darkness and then the death of the firstborn. Do you notice a pattern? You notice some commonalities as we think about how does this point me to Christ? How is this fulfilled in Christ? When Jesus was crucified, hanging on the cross for your sin and my sin and the sins of the world, what happened at midday? The sky, the sky grew totally dark and cosmic in scope, the one through whom all things were created was being killed for our sins. He was dying and it was being magnified into the created order. Darkness, chaos. It says there were earthquakes and rocks were split apart. Tombs were broken open. All kinds of things were shaking. The whole cosmic order, the, very, the, the thing that God upholds in his hands, he was allowing to be shaken because he was dying for sin. He was taking our judgment on the cross. Chaos was breaking out. And on the other side of it, God was going to deliver through and bring order. It's that pattern of God delivering through chaos of sin. Now, even on the cross, sin, Satan, and death were defeated, but they've not totally been taken care of yet, as you and I know. We deal with these things all the time. But you read at the end of the book in Revelation, it looks a whole lot like the plagues. The apocalyptic language of Revelation picks up these themes. In fact, Jesus taught about the end times, what to expect. He talks about the sun and moon being darkened. He talks about wars and earthquakes and all sorts of stuff. And this will happen when Christ returns. There will be another uncreation, if you will. A, a chaotic thing will be unleashed, and then he will bring deliverance through it and bring order. And that time, it will be perfectly done. Behold, I make all things new. And then it will be perfected, the consummation that we've all longed for. Chaos and then renewal. So application points quickly. Well, one, personal chaos is what happens when we disobey God's law. He gave us his laws and his ways so that our lives will have order and be blessed. If we ignore those, it's not like he's doing it for his purposes. He's doing it out of love for us. He gave us the instruction manuals, you will, if you will, for your life of how to live. If you disobey that, chaos happens. You start to break down. And hell is just the, the, the final chaos. It's total disintegration of the person. Like in, in an automobile accident, the person is totaled. The car is totally wrecked. Its value has, is gone. If you want to see some caricatures of that, read C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. Little snapshots of what it looks like when that chaos and that entropy happens all the way down in a person's life. It's awful. And God doesn't want that for anyone. So we have to be careful about the hardness of heart that can happen by 
the, the gradual ignoring of God's Word, the comfort we grow with a certain sin in our lives, rather than putting it to death, taking up our cross daily. God warns out of love and mercy so that we can come and be delivered. Notice in, if you go and look at the, the, the plague of the hail coming down, he tells the Egyptians, anything that's in the field will be destroyed. So bring your, bring your animals in, get your workers out of the field. And it says the Egyptians that feared God did that and they were spared. The ones that ignored him died and their, and their animals died. There's mercy. God warns us. He's encouraging us because he loves. Now, in light of the resurrection and Jesus' ministry, what does he tell Christians our mission is? When he sends out the 72 to the towns where he's going, he tells them very specifically, heal the sick, chaos moving into order, heal the sick, cast out demons, proclaim the good news, and say the kingdom of God is now available here. His kingdom, of, his ordered kingdom is breaking into a chaotic world, and it's available in Christ now for anyone who wants it. So what do we do as a church? We have prayer ministry. We pray for healing and deliverance, and those things happen. We have Alpha to proclaim the good news to people that don't know the gospel. They don't actually know the message of the Bible. And so we, we invite them to have questions and come and ask, who is this God that I should obey his voice? Same question that Pharaoh asked, and there's an answer to it, and it's a good answer. And um, we worship God. We come to worship him on Sunday mornings. And then finally, Exodus 10.2 says, tell it to the generations. We pass on the faith to the next generation. Our church, Extending Grace Discipling Generations, we share the gospel with those who are younger in faith. We're constantly passing it on to the next generation so it's not forgotten. This is important to God and it matters. So I want you to think about the sin in your life and the chaos that it brings and God's mercy and how he delivers through the chaos of sin and come to him and let him reorder it. Let his grace work in your life. Turn your life over to him and worship him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the, the marvelous deeds that you've done and that we have them recorded here in this book. Thank you for the Bible, Lord. I pray that you would help us see how good your word is and that we would be like that man in Psalm 1 who's planted by a stream of living water, bringing forth fruit in due season and being prospered because you're so good to us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.